Georgia Football, Classic Cinema and Omelets Podcast with your host, Steve Shafini. Steve. Thanks, elderly Jewish me. Sounding good. Sounding good. All right. This is the Internet's premier podcast for Georgia Football, Classic Cinema and Omelet Recipes. I like to call Georgia Football, Classic Cinema and Omelets. It's week four. Georgia comes off a drubbing, a humiliating 45-14 loss at Ole Miss. Uh, changing the whole season, changing expectations, making Georgia fans... Convinced that the sun is off its axis and about to incinerate each one of us, boiling our blood as we go. Everybody chill. Everybody chill. It's bad. How bad is it we're going to get into? It's like Georgia has this, this little trunk, right? It's like a secret trunk. And in that casing, that safe casing, we're 3-0. We have three wins by a combined margin of 12 points. We beat the mighty colonels of Nickel State. We had a miracle win at a rebuilding Missouri program. We beat North Carolina. Essentially, was a home game for us. Tuck it down. We don't know there's a dead body. Mutilated corpse inside that trunk. And then, bam! In walks Jimmy fucking Stewart. That's why we're going to talk about the 1948 Alfred Hitchcock classic, Rope, today. Other movies might have been good for this Georgia game, like um, The Towering Inferno, Titanic, Mississippi Burning, any disaster movie, any horror movie, but... We're going to stick with rope. It seems pretty appropriate. And in honor of Oxford, Mississippi's bountiful Jewish population, I'm going to be making a, uh, salmon, lox, and cream cheese omelet. I don't know how I feel about heating cream cheese, but we're going to try it. We're nothing if not an open-minded uh, football, cinema, and omelet podcast. All right, so with the crack of the egg, can you hear that? <laughs> Again, it doesn't go over. We are underway. Oh, shit. Burnt my hand. A little too much butter. God. All right, so let's, let's start this postmortem. All right, I don't know how much stock you're going to put into what angry, drunk Georgia fans tweet or say on social media after the game. But, um, you know, when I was watching the postgame Dog Nation uh, thing on Facebook with Brandon Adams and uh, Jeff Sintel, because let's face it, they need a, a plug from us. Um, you know I was just as shocked as they were that people are going to this argument so early on in the Kirby Smart era. Coach Richt. We wouldn't have lost like that if we had Coach Richt. Um, This is insane, not only for the lack of patience, but for the complete short-term memory loss. I mean, are you fucking kidding me? I've never seen a... Someone tweeted, I've never seen a Coach Richt team quit like this. You can't think back to last year's Florida game. Or the year before that's Florida game. Or the 2007 blackout game. Or the 2012 South Carolina game. And that's what I don't get. This is a classic Mark Richt, unprepared, unfocused, 
blowout game in a big spot against a ranked team, just like I thought we were going to avoid under Kirby Smart. So how can you say that we'd be better off if we wouldn't make the change? Are we really going to say that four games in? Because we sound like fucking idiots when we say that. We sound like the guys who ran through the window, the guys burning down the tree at Tumor's Corner, the most impatient and spoiled fan base in the country. Is this what we're going to do? Is this what we're going to say after four games that we shouldn't have made a change? In a game where we were outmanned, outgunned, outplayed, outcoached. Yes, outcoached. But it was one game. You're talking a trend over Coach Rick over the last 10 years. In fact, every year since you last won the SEC in 2005, Georgia played worse and worse against ranked teams. It was an obvious trend that the rest of the SEC got better and Georgia stayed the same. We're talking one game here, the first loss. And it was a brutal loss, and a lot of that falls on Coach Smart. Uh, Kirby may or may not be the guy, but we certainly don't know yet. We're playing 13 freshmen, including the quarterback, and it's 3-1. That being said, this coaching staff, along with a lot of other people, deserve a lot of blame to go around in this debacle. And for me, you know, I said I wanted our team. What do you want out of this new staff? What do you, what do you want? I want our teams to play with balls, not play like pussies, to play with an edge. And we did that against North Carolina, and I was happy thinking the games where we would come out so unfocused and so miserable and down 31 nothing in the third quarter were behind us. Well, they're not. So everyone deserves blame. Less, I mean, you can make the case that, you know, you can't blame this on Coach Richt. Well, I mean, he did recruit that patchwork terrible offensive line that doesn't look like it's ready to play in the SEC at all. If, if you were that kind of person, if you want to say that, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to blame the guys who were there. There's plenty to go around. You know, and I did say, you know, the other close wins, because it seems like Georgia, we lose one of two ways. We either lose an embarrassing, humiliating blowout, like yesterday, or the one-play-away games, the Chris Conley can't get out of bounds game, the uh, Todd Gurley can't punch it in first and goal from the forest South Carolina game. You know, we, one of those two, and we had a couple of those wins. We're on the right side of that against Missouri, and then we just had a classic Georgia blowout in a big spot where just everything, where you're down... So fast, so early, the rest is just meaningless. We added Brian Heron had two touchdowns in the fourth quarter. It doesn't mean anything. You know, window dressing. So it was really bad. Why was it so bad? <clears throat> Excuse me. And by no means is anyone given the uh, coaching staff, the current coaching staff, a free pass either. Jeff Schultz already wrote, that's the kind of loss a coach should be fired. I don't know if he's insinuating that we went too fast on Mark Rick. Yes, it was a classic Rick game, but it was one. Rick had like 10. Okay, no, Kirby's not going to get a 15-year window to win the national championship or even win the SEC. He's not. But again, he's going to get a little bit more than a four-game window. So everybody chill the fuck out, all right? You know, I get called too negative, calling my own alma mater a bunch of pussies, which they were. But if I'm the voice of reason here, now I know we're in deep shit. Because you don't want to run through a window when we beat Missouri by one. So let's not run through a window here. In a game like that, where it's out of control so fast, I was looking for anything positive, any sign of improvement, and I didn't see any. And that's what really worries me. Offensive line, ineffective, again. Pass rush, non-existent, again. Secondary, absolutely torched. Kicking game, it's like slapstick comedy out there. Special teams is just horrendous. Remember when the big deal was Coach Rick not hiring a special teams coach, and that's why we were always down? Well, we're going to have to find a new excuse because special teams is every bit as bad under the new staff. So many things went wrong in that game, and none of them had anything to do with Mark Rick's 4-0 record at Miami. 
And now... Les Miles and Cam Cameron are out at LSU. So if LSU hires Tom Herman and he proves to be a big success immediately with better players, that has nothing to do with us. So this is the choice we made. As Satchel Page said, don't look back. Something might be ganging on you. However, there's no doubt about it that this coaching staff did not have the team prepared. Uh, especially with this notion, and I keep hearing that, you know, Kirby, we just can't do this with Coach Rick's players. Whether I mean, no, he hasn't said that directly, so don't put words in my mouth. I'm just saying there's a general feeling that we're trying to run this smash mouth offensive line, beat you in the trenches with bigger guys, um, Alabama-style offense, and we just don't have that kind of personnel. Well, hang on, let me flip this omelet real quick. I don't want to burn it. Um, I'm going to put the cream cheese in after the flip. I don't know if that's testing the omelet gods or whatever. And I'm also using regular onions, not green onions because I'm out. Salmon looks good, though. This might be a decent omelet. All right, as I was saying, <clears throat> I mean, we have a patchwork offensive line. We don't have a pass rush. We have uh, wide receivers that are undersized in a kicking game that's not on scholarship. So what are we going to do? Just sit down and get blown out every week and wait for Kirby's recruits to come in? Help us on the way? I've heard that a lot as a Georgia fan. A.J. Green's not going to walk through that door. Matt Stinchcomb's not going to walk through that door. This is what we have. we got to regroup for an even bigger divisional game against Tennessee. Yeah, we're rebuilding. We're going to take the next couple seasons off. No. Got to work with what you have. So, Jim Chaney, Kirby Smart, Sam Pittman, they got some work to do. they got to find some wrinkles to get our playmakers the ball. Same thing I said last week, which is frustrating. I just don't see how a program like this is so deep and so talented at certain positions, like running back, and then so thin and so exposed in other positions like offensive line and defensive line, like kicker also. Now, we're going to get into kicking in a second, but everybody, <laughs> I know Rodrigo Blankenship, comes out with these Coke bottle bifocal glasses, and I know he's an easy target, and... But, I mean, you know, in a, in a 45-14 game that Ole Miss was up 31 nothing, are we really going to have a, a big argument about kicking? I mean, it really matters, so we, we would have lost 45-17. That being said, UGA is 3 of 8 on field goals this year, whether it's ham or blanket ship. That's pretty awful. That's less than half. We're getting into some Tecmo Bowl shit. Whenever you're inside the other guy's territory, just go for it. Oh, we got a 4th and 45. <laughs> just put it up there. See if Easton can throw it down Felix. You're statistically... You have less than a 3 of 8 chance of getting it, or more than a 3 of 8 chance of getting it. So, but, but again, lay off Blankenship for a second. I think we have some, some audio here of him. Some of the square roots of any two sides of an isosceles triangle is equal to the square root of the remaining side. Okay, thanks, Egghead. Now, you don't have to have a degree in thinkology, hey, uh, to know that the kicking game, really, it's as bad and humiliating as it is, and as, like, Sad as one of Blankenship's or Ham's kicks look and how far they are from the actual goalpost. That's a whole other podcast. When you give up 500 yards through the air through three quarters, let's not talk about the fucking kicking game. Okay? Because that was one of the worst secondary performances I've ever seen on a Georgia team. Defense absolutely invisible. And we know the offensive line is bad. We talked that to death. Chubb and Michelle can't get going. And then but zero pass rush. Zero pressure on Kelly. Uh, you know, 45 nothing in the third. Um, we managed just one sack on Kelly, giving up three. We're next to last in the SEC, I think, with three sacks on the year. It's not going to get it done. Not going to get it done, no matter who the kicker is. 
To put it in coaching terms for you, this defense is hemorrhaging points and yards allowed at a Willie Martinez-like rate. Yes, I went there. Former defense coordinator Willie Martinez. By the way, Notre Dame just fired former Georgia defense coordinator Brian Van Gorder after losing to Duke. Yikes. Things are tough all over. But getting back, I mean, you know, the secondary completely non-existent. Juwan Briscoe got picked on all night long in a game where we gave up 500 yards through three quarters. Chad Kelly could pass at will. We were trailing 45-0 on our way to our worst conference blowout loss since 1943 at the hands of Georgia Tech, who doesn't even play in the SEC anymore. Georgia fans, we're going to talk about the kicker. We're going to talk about the old coach. No, we got some serious work to do, and if we don't improve, we're looking at a 3-9 and kind of rebuilding year, which I don't think we're that bad. It was a tough matchup because Ole Miss had the intangible coming off the humiliating uh, collapse against Alabama and Florida State back-to-back. They had all the focus, and they had better players for now. But there's no reason we should ever get blown out like that in a game. And then Chubb leaves with an ankle injury. He did not practice today. Lord, Lord, why are you so vengeful towards this program? If you want to pick one play, it's stupid to even look at one play when it's a complete failure on every level. But Lorenzo Carter had Chad Kelly wrapped up in the backfield for what would have been a huge loss. He can't quite wrap him up, and of course Kelly throws off his back foot in a double coverage for a touchdown. Uh, that was a, one of the huge backbreakers of many. The pregame meal, the start time, it was just everything was, went wrong. And I got to say, Lorenzo Carter, five-star linebacker, you know, we think he's going to be the next Leonard Floyd or Jordan Jenkins. He really, we're waiting for him to blossom into a great pass rusher. It hasn't happened yet. Um, another sequence, too. After the fake punt, ballsy call by Jim Chaney and Kirby Smart. Hats off to him. It's one of our, I think, our best play from scrimmage at 29, 29 yards. But then they picked a hell of a time to dip the football in Vaseline. Jesus, it was just like, how, it was like a slippery pig. McKenzie drop, Reggie Davis drop, McKenzie drop, not a drop. They couldn't hold on to the ball, and that was a crucial time because as bad as a blowout as it was in the Florida State and Alabama games, the, uh, they got a, a late touchdown at the end of the half, which was a huge momentum-seizing uh, moment for the team. And you know Georgia just really had any chance. They had to get a score there, and it was just, you know, slipped right through your fingers. Speaking of things dipped in Vaseline, let's see Dog Nation Daily do that kind of segue. The 1948 Alfred Hitchcock film Rope is ripe with latent homoeroticism, just like college football. Uh, You know what? Fuck Rope, because I don't really have a lot to say about it. It was kind of more known for its gimmick. Um, Hitchcock wanted to do a film with no cuts. However, those cameras in those days only held eight minutes worth of film stock, so they basically did an invisible cut every eight minutes. There are ten cuts in all, making for an 88-minute film. So he would like pan into, say, a support beam or a real close-up shot of someone's sport jacket or something, and then make a cut there and pan back out, and it would look like he hadn't made one, but he did. So there you go. That's pretty much the story of Rope. So I don't really have anything to add, so I want to talk about Shadow of a Doubt instead because I actually like that better. Now, how this pertains to Georgia football, you can just as easily make a case. It's this idyllic suburban California town. Trouble bustling in from the East Coast on a train. A big, shadowy belch of dark fog and despair. In walks Uncle Charlie, the Merry Widow Murderer. Or there's the Black Widow Murderer. The Black Widow Murderer. Exposing the facade, the seedy underbelly of suburbia. 
Just like Ole Miss exposed the Georgia secondary. Hey! That works for me. All right, I'm adding the cream cheese now, and I just put a little Mrs. Dash up on that shit because I don't have the green onions, and let me hang on. This is actually really good. Um, the omelet's really good in spite of the useless tits on a bowl recipe from foodnetwork.com. I mean, it just tells you how to make a generic omelet. It doesn't tell you when to put in the cream cheese, when to cook the salmon. So if it's pre-cooked, you can pretty much put any damn thing in an omelet, and it'll taste good. That's my theory. And Mrs. Dash is a pretty shitty substitute for green onions. Shadow of a doubt. You know, whether it's uh, music or movies or greatest running backs of all time or whatever, I, I hate, like, list phenomenon that's around the Internet. It's always stupid. And it's like, what's your favorite Hitchcock? If you're a film fan and there's not room on your list for, say, Rear Window and Vertigo, then you're a fucking fucktard. Um... But I, I like the early American movies, Hitchcock. They're not talked about quite as often. Uh, we could have just as easily been talking about Rope or Strangers on a Train or Spellbound, Notorious. But I like Shadow of a Doubt for Joseph Cotton. And we talked about the setting of this idyllic, like, very 1950s Leave it to Beaver kind of town. It's like, starts out as so dated and it's really... But what I don't get about Shadow of a Doubt is why Uncle Charlie and his niece is also named Charlie. Couldn't they have changed it? Just for the sake of clarity? And what's even more confusing, uh, I found out that his last name is Oakley. Charles Oakley. What if he was the Knicks forward, sent back in time? That probably scared the shit out of white bread, 1943, suburban California. Big 6'9", <laughs> black guy there. Grab a couple rebounds, Chuck. Anyway, so I guess that's the duality of the whole thing. You have the idyllic, beautiful, wide-open West Coast and the opening shot of the uh, Pulaski Skyway in Newark, New Jersey. The, you know, the shitty, run-down, polluted... Inner city. They have the pristine, young, virginal Charlie contrasted with her sociopath, demented Uncle Charlie. And it's kind of like a Michigan J. Frog thing in Bugs Bunny. Only she knows he's the Mary Widow murderer, which is kind of weird because he has the least effective, most troubling, unsettling, ice-breaking speech of all time at dinner. And no one figures this out. The citizen's different. The cities are full of women, middle-aged widows, husbands dead, husbands who've spent their lives making fortunes, working and working. And then they die and leave their money to their wives, their silly wives. And what do the wives do, these useless women? You see them in the hotels, the best hotels every day by the thousands, drinking the money, eating the money, losing the money at bridge, playing all day and all night, smelling of money. Proud of that jewelry, but of nothing else. Horrible. Faded, fat, greedy women. They're alive. They're human beings. Are they? Yeah. God, I never heard anything so misogynist in a rap record. This is 1943. And then he looks right in the camera like he's coming to kill you next, you fat, faded woman. Taking my money, spending it at bridge. So by today's standards, he's very obviously the killer, and only young Charlie figures this out. And you know, and then like I guess this woman who looks like she's fifty years older than him, presumably his sister, never noticed any psycho tendencies torturing small animals while growing up. And then they just resume conversation like nothing happened. Say, how about that President Roosevelt? Hey, looking very spry lately. You know, <laughs> this is, this doesn't freak anybody out. 
going to talk about the theme of duality, and it's in Joseph Cotton. He can just turn it on, turn it off like that, and just be in this warm uncle bringing gifts for the kids one minute, and it's completely deranged, sadistic, sociopath next. And again, the police, you follow them around, there's a whole boring romantic subplot with Teresa Wright and the police. I mean, you can just fast forward that shit. At the end, uh, Charlie loses her innocence. No, not in the biblical sense, you perverts. She kills her Uncle Charlie. She has the nerve to push him off the train, and he gets hit by the oncoming train in the other direction. He dies on the train, just like he came into town, at the cost of Charlie losing her innocence and this whole nice town never being quite the same. And then they have a funeral for him, despite, you know, no one really knew this guy, just came in from out of town, this mysterious stranger. And, you know, they have this, like, hero's funeral for him, and no one ever finds out, presumably, that he was the Mary Widow murderer. So the moral of the story, white people in 1943 suburbia are fucking stupid. I mean, it's kind of like a loss of innocence thing, or you believe what you want to believe. Just like the Georgia fan base believe that 3-0, with a win over Nichols and a win over Missouri, a win's a win. We're undefeated. We still have a chance to win the East with a win over Tennessee. The Ole Miss game was a wake-up call. Didn't we hear that about the Nichols State game and the Missouri games? Uncle Charlie's speech, was that a wake-up call? Do you think, hmm, maybe this just might be the Mary Widow murder the police have been talking about? Georgia fans' dreams of winning the East. Are we just a bunch of fat, faded, greedy women? Are we in denial that we just dropped 13 spots in the AP rankings? Maybe we need to rise up and face the impending sense of existential fear and dread coming in from a train that not only is our uncle the Mary Widow murderer, this might be a 3-9 and nine complete rebuilding team. <sighs> I like to think not. I think on talent, even in a rebuilding year, we can get to 8 or 9 wins. But one week from today, after the Tennessee game, which is the biggest game of the year, this was a bad matchup for us at Ole Miss. It's a maybe slightly better matchup for us at home against Tennessee. We opened up as a three-and-a-half-point underdog. Home underdogs in the SEC tend to cover, but I don't really have anything positive to hang my hat on in the first four Georgia games of the year. I don't even have a hat, in fact. not wearing one. Put it this way, with a win next week, Georgia will control its own destiny. We're going to be talking about the possibility of winning the East. With the second loss in a row, we're going to be talking about bowl eligibility. Will we get to six? So this is huge. Can't overstate the importance of this divisional game against Tennessee. Now, as far as intangibles, Tennessee is coming up with this huge win against Florida. They broke the streak at 11 straight. Tennessee's whole season, Butch Jones' whole tenure, and every fucking hillbilly up there with the fucking bad mustache and camouflage tea hat with the fluorescent tee. Their whole season was riding on this Florida game, and now that they got the wind, are we going to catch them off guard the next week? I hope so, and if you think I'm grasping at straws, I am. Just remember Booger McFarland's tweet about the Ole Miss game. Georgia, no playmakers, outside, no running game, no pass rush, no pass defense, freshman QB, recipe for disaster, and it was. Yikes. I don't want to end on uh, something negative, so let me just get some audio here. It's got this off a dog vent from a random Georgia fan. How do you know what the world is like? Do you know the world is a foul sty? Do you know if you ripped the fronts off houses, you'd find swine? The world's a hell. What does it matter what happens in it? Wake up, Charlie. Use your wits. Learn something. Whoa. Everyone chill. It's just one game. There's some nihilistic Georgia fans here. Maybe that was part of the uh, pregame motivational speech. 
really got us going. Speaking of motivation, pregame, and all the intangibles, could we made of any bigger deal about the 11 a.m. local start time? If that's what we need to get motivated, if that's our advantage, we're in deep shit. I mean, I get it. I, I love tailgating. A couple other rich southern guys can't get as drunk as they'd like to be at that hour. And, you know, the Grove is pretty cool. It's a good time. But it's still not better than Athens, in my opinion. The Grove is just like a big field with all the tailgates put together. So if you say, if you take all the tailgates all over campus in Athens and put them in one place, you'd have the Grove. And it's not better because they have a chandelier. That's just stupid. That's wasteful. So, you know, every time I say Athens is the best college town, someone says, oh, you've never been to Oxford. Well, I've been to Oxford. I went to the Vanderbilt game last year, which was the whitest SEC game you could ever see. And, you know, those frat guys that we would make fun of in college who, you know, wore the shirt and tie and had the girl with the dress when it was 90 degrees out and humid. That was every single person in Ole Miss. So if you like hipster goth girls or any kind of diversity, Athens is your place. So on that note, that's my positive thought for the day. I'll leave you with this uh, happy song for those of you who think Georgia can still win the SEC East. Thanks, everyone, for clicking. Please subscribe on iTunes, and I'll talk to you next week. Thank you.